Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a research fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today it's my pleasure to be talking with Donald M. Nunini, a professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, about his new book, Getting By, Class and State Formation Among Chinese in Malaysia, published in 2015 by Cornell University Press. Don, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Nick, and uh, thank you so much for having me on uh, the show. I feel um, honored. Um, uh, so uh, I think uh, I really was called to... Um, uh, write the book out of many years of frustration about the neglect of class uh, and class uh, relations uh, among Chinese in Southeast Asia. And uh, the, 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 there's a dominant strain or a couple of dominant strains uh, in the literatures about the Chinese in Southeast Asia, which um, I find uh, per, uh, uh, to have particular shortcomings. One such vision is that uh, that Chinese in Southeast Asia are, for all intents and purposes, businessmen, or if they're not, or and businesswomen, and if they're not um, uh, merchants, they should be. In other words, uh, and uh, that defaults to the second position, which is uh, that um, you know that. Uh, uh, the Chinese working class, which uh, does exist throughout Southeast Asian uh, cities and uh, rural areas, has been largely uh, neglected and ignored um, in favor of this first dominant vision of the Chinese as the prototypical um, uh, entrepreneurial business uh, uh, business person. Uh, and so... Um, I felt that this did uh, various kinds of injustice to um, the people I knew uh, in uh, Malaysia, where I ended up doing um, first two years of dissertation field work from 1978 to 1980, and then paid a series of uh, re- made a series of return visits, uh, usually for several months, from the uh, from 1985 through the. Um, 1990s and in fact up until 2007 so uh, it became increasingly clear to me that that um, the whole question of the class differentiation among Chinese was an important question and it was important because of the way in which Chinese have been widely perceived both in the scholarship um, about um, um, uh, about in Southeast Asia, among so among Southeast Asianists, but also, and I think more imp- critically, uh, by the leadership of the uh, uh, of um, of the countries uh, of Southeast Asia, uh, which have seen them as um, unreliable, unscrupulous um, uh, business types, 
uh, always um, um, engaged in um, looking for a deal, looking to uh, exploit the natives, if you will. And um, uh, and uh, there are various uh, political positions, policies, and laws that have Im- been implemented precisely with this assumption in mind. And this was certainly has certainly been the case in Malaysia, where uh, the same political administration, the same politi- uh, well, uh, led by the same political party, has been continuously in power for 58 years since independence in 1957. So unless my arithmetic is way off, um, this is one of the long, most long-standing uh, political regimes uh, in the world, and it is, uh, its policies have been directed against a... Uh, uh, against uh, ethnic Chinese, um, uh, which have been cast uh, in uh, uh, by the uh, policymakers, by the rulers, if you wish, uh, as a largely uh, unscrupulous businessmen and women um, with no loyalty to the nation, etc., etc. So, in order to understand um, Chinese citizenship, in order to understand uh, daily life which as an anthropologist, as a sociocultural anthropologist, uh, I'm committed to understanding one has to make sense of class one, uh, and one needs to ha- uh, have a specific um, conception of how class is manifested in relationships between people in everyday life, whether between Chinese um, uh, or between Chinese and non-Chinese. Uh, and one needs to look at how class relationships of this kind um, vary from, uh, you know, by gender, uh, vary, um, uh, uh, you know, across ethnicity and so forth. So uh, I felt that this was a project worth undertaking. So, um, uh, and, and what I discovered is that it took a considerable time to re- really think through both my field data and to think through what it meant, for example, to be a working-class Chinese person in Malaysia, which is where my fieldwork uh, uh, is centered and where the book is centered. And part of that thinking through of what class meant uh, in uh, among my uh, the people I worked with, my subjects, if you wish, was to uh, uh, involved a rethinking of of uh, how class becomes manifested in public life. And by that I mean um, the, um, there has been this idea that, I mean, because the, 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 a, there's a reigning idea, as I pointed out, that either all Chinese are uh, uh, business people or if they aren't, they should be. Um, that uh, for that reason... Um, a certain kind of uh, set of assumptions about uh, public life and its connection to class have been per- have been have prevailed. What do I mean by that? I mean that um, what class involves uh, is uh, uh, one's relationship not only to the means of production, which is a classical vision of of class identity that extends back to Karl Marx and earlier. But it's also control over the means of uh, authoritative uh, discourse. In other words, one has to be able to enunciate who one is in public 
for it to be to exist in a certain sense, for it to have uh, an existence that can be acknowledged by others. And so central to my vision of class is that it is simultaneously, it simultaneously involves, uh, depending where people are in the, uh, uh, in the society and depending upon their relative access to resources and so forth, it, the, the uh, class identity uh, involves control over certain material resources, employment, capital, um, uh, education, and so forth on one hand, but it also, on the other, and with it all, with the first all the way, is the capacity to enunciate um, who, uh, who one is. And if that capacity is systematically denied you, then, in a certain sense, a kind of violence is being done toward you. And, it's this, and so, ignoring the presence of working-class Chinese in Malaysia and elsewhere in Southeast Asia is a kind of, uh, it's too forceful to call it a violence, but it's a, it's a reading out, as we say, a reading out of, of, of people who are very much historical actors and who I found to be so in uh, the daily lives of the, of the Chinese in Malaysia who I came to know well. Uh, so I don't know if that makes sense, but key point, key, the key issue is that class identity uh, involves control over the means of production, where one is in that system of control. Does one own productive property or other kinds of, pro, uh, of resource? Uh, and simultaneously control over the means of authoritative discourse. I think it's important, and this is something that doesn't come out in the book, but uh, if you think of um, disability, as a particularly uh, forms of uh, publicly recognized deformity, so-called deformity. Um, um, people are, um, you know, uh, there's a certain way in which uh, uh, the uh, identity of people who are, is, who is, who are disabled uh, is dealt with in the public domain. People are either ignored on one hand, uh, you know, or they're, they're generally ignored, but not necessarily their disability, they become invisible. The, the cripple alongside the road becomes invisible to most people, um, uh, but exists and is part of, the, of, 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 the, of daily life. Uh, uh, but they exist. Um, or, uh, uh, if that doesn't happen, then they are acknowledged as disabled, but uh, stigmatized as, as being uh, unfit. Uh, in, in daily life. Um, as a result of this, um, uh, the whole question of how anyone can affirm an identity which is already stigmatized, uh, can take it on and rework it, is the key question that I decided to uh, examine uh, in the book uh, with respect to the working class people I came to know. Uh, in the, uh, the city uh, of Bukit Murtaja in Penang State, where I did my fieldwork. And, and the key term that you use throughout the book is cultural style. Can you explain what that means in this context and, and how it runs throughout the text? Sure. Uh, let me give an, uh, an example. As I began uh, looking at my field data, and it took me a long time to try to make sense of it, I found that People who I would call uh, from outside as, as a, the anthropologist who uh, 
with the privilege of spending a long period of time with uh, uh, people, uh, uh, which uh, I would call um, uh, uh, working class, um, people who were like those in the that focused centrally in, ch- in chapters uh, five and six of my book, who were truck drivers or lorry drivers. Uh, these uh, folks were described by dominant actors, merchants, um, um, other Chinese, uh, non-working class Chinese, as crude. Uh, uh, there's a, a Chinese phrase, I could give it in two different languages but won't, but the high idea is that a working uh, people that we would identify as being working class are really crude and unlettered. They curse people. Um, they have, they're unmannered. Uh, they don't know how to act in public. They're un- emotionally unrestrained. Um, uh, they're uh, considered to be wild. The, uh, in Mandarin, the, phrase, uh, the term is luan, means wild. Or, uh, and that this is the characterization of working class people. Now, this is very interesting because it's a key term for the way in which dominant Chinese, uh, Chinese merchants with property, for example, would describe their workers as, 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 as crude. Uh, and so, uh, and that would have a number of uh, consequences in uh, terms of the way um, employers would treat their, uh, their, um, their uh, working class employees. Now, this is very interesting because, uh, I would say, because it reflects a dominant distinction in Malaysian society. And that's between um, being uh, um, crude, kasar, and refined, or alus, which is a key status distinction in Malaysian society. So I saw this cultural borrowing uh, applied uh, to working class Chinese that is very much... Uh, you know, uh, uh, one that one could say is a dominant social distinction in Malaysian public culture. Okay, um, so um, uh, as a result, crudeness is described in terms of certain behaviors and certain uh, patterns of speech, um, particularly in public. Uh, certain incapacities, like the inca- supposed incapacity by most workers to speak Mandarin whether that's true or not, but Mandarin is what we think of as the, as the authoritative Chinese language is associated historically with, um, with uh, uh, literacy and with uh, the ma- uh, Mandarin Chinese elite. Um, uh, so unable to speak Mandarin, uh, unable to show um, proper restrained comportment. And in contrast to uh, crude Chinese, you have what is oh, people with manners, so it's, uh, it's another Chinese phrase, yoli mao. So you have uh, people who are crude and people who have manners. And this is a major social distinction uh, um, among, uh, uh, within Chinese uh, society in Malaysia. And indeed, I would argue it, it, it represents a, a borrowing or incorporation of a dominant social distinction. Okay, what does that have to do with cultural style? Sorry to take so long to get to the main point. People... Um, associate a certain kind of public performance with these two status positions, being crude, having or having manners, right? And so um, uh, as it became clear to me um, 
you know, that this uh, is a, a, a major social distinction, I began to uh, use that to, to, uh, uh, distinction, to think about that distinction in terms of what it meant not just to the people who were being stigmatized, the working class Chinese being stigmatized as crude, wild, um, unmannered, um, um, emotional, and so forth, but uh, also how would they manifest be uh, uh, such crudeness, and by that I mean a certain, uh, 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 I mean to put it this way: How could they a, uh, both deal with this label and critically reject it? So, for example, in one of my chapters in um, Chapter Five called "Class Dismissed," I find I've, I, I, I give an example of the way in which working-class Chinese men tend to use this idea of being crude ironically. In other words, they use it uh, as a discursive weapon, as part of that discourse package for describing who you are and where you are in the social universe, to describe themselves in ways that both admit, yeah, okay, we can be crude, but also uh, we can do all these things, but you know, uh, it's, all, it's a false distinction because there's so much more that matters. Um, and what matters is control over property. What matters is what the right we have to, or not to, uh, the right we don't have to describe ourselves in our own terms. So I'm trying to get to this um, in, in, a, uh, in my um, fieldwork data. And I'm trying to look at, um, but I'm trying to look at that uh, both among the working class Chinese, I have the, honor of working, of knowing, but also among the, the people uh, with um, property and priv- a degree of privilege, including the, uh, the elite of the uh, city where I ended up doing research. And part of that, too, was to look at the way in which cultural styles applied, uh, uh, apply not only to the Chinese uh, uh, working people, but also to Chinese uh, entrepreneurs, to uh, wealthy, ty- uh, well, not, I wouldn't call them tycoons, but very wealthy Chinese, um, and where a certain kind of public performance, um, uh, which I would call a cultural style associated with being wealthy and Chinese, is performed. And that has to do, uh, that performance has to do with um, the Malaysian state. Uh, and that has, uh, and why is, is, is the cultural performance of both poor Chinese and wealthy Chinese connected to the Malaysian state because of this dominant, uh, one to begin with, because this dominant um, uh, distinction in um, uh, Bahasa Malaysia or Malay between being kasar or, and, or crude and alus, which is, so it's a, it's a dominant social distinction. But it also matters because the um, uh, Malaysian government has, uh, for the last 58 years, basically instituted uh, ethnic discrimination um, through laws, um, constitutional changes, regulations, uh, and so forth, which have uh, negatively affected Chinese working people, but also negatively affected uh, Chinese people of wealth. And so the public performance, particularly of people of wealth, is one uh, of appearing, as I say, to be, uh, to just get by, to be uh, barely, uh, to have no property to, or to have very little property, to be a poor, to appear in public as a poor person. So central to both 
working class uh, identities, and men and women are different here, and central to uh, the identities of men and women of, 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 of property are public performances that are highly stylized and, and scripted, if you wish. And again, this has to do with contr- uh, their relationship um, in very different cases to control of the means of production and control of means of uh, authoritative discourse or what can be said and uh, gotten away with being said. Does that make sense? It certainly does. And in the preceding chapter to the one that you've been referring to, Chapter 5, in, in Chapter 4 you talk about um, – you, you describe the Malaysian state in formation as having a kind of predatory relations with the Chinese community. Uh, you refer to it as, as an antagonistic, personalized state and also speak to the consequences of that. Um, you describe it as encouraging an androcentric, anti-state and anti-Malay discourse amongst the members of the Chinese community. Can you develop those points a bit more and perhaps take us a little bit deeper into the field side where you've been doing all of this work over the last three decades? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, the, um, it's, it's really interesting being a, a sociocultural anthropologist because one has a deep and well, a profound debt to the people one works with who tolerate you know, your incessant questionings, often, um, you know, uh, not at convenient times, often asking questions that are appear to be um, uninformed, um, sometimes with, lang- with you know, not, not fully fluent in, in, in the language you're comfortable with and so forth. So, um, yeah, but, but, so I, 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 I Try, I try, have tried on one hand to be a faithful reporter of what people have told me. And what people have told me up and down the class system among my Chinese informants is that, um, um, that they have uh, antagonistic relationships with a variety of state officials, with state police, uh, with, I mean with the, the, the police of the Malaysian police, which is a uh, a specific agency of the Malaysian government with traffic police in the case of my the truck drivers I knew with Malay soldiers or Malaysian government soldiers um, um, uh, but all and all sorts of um, officials um, both elected uh, and uh, appointed officials and that is uh, the, the the predatory quality has to do with the fact that as I'm sure most of your listeners know um, there's a, a dominant um, party in power uh, called the United Malay National Organization that's been continuously in power for the last 58 years that has instituted um, um, uh, law laws and regulations that um, uh, specifically directed at Chinese in terms of of a bus- uh, um, China, control over business property, uh, over Chinese access to uh, government uh, university education, to using uh, um, uh, certain languages of instruction, um, to um, uh, re- uh, all sorts of, of requirements that tend to favor not just 
Malays or Bumiputra, but very wealthy, a very what could be called the emergent um, um, bourgeois uh, economic and political elite of, uh, who are Malays. Uh, with a result, with the result that um, um, uh, that uh, Chinese disadvantaged by these laws have. Uh, been in a position where they've been subject to all sorts of predation. And by predation, that means, um, you know, it can be sustained predation. That is to say, um, again and again, the people I interviewed would say, well, you know, we tried to get um, um, some power uh, restored in our neighborhood and they refused to do it. Um, or we, we we hoped for a long time that we, are, we would have um, sewage uh, and we, you know, petitioned, but they said, you can't, uh, uh, you're not going to, they being government uh, agencies, said that we're not going to give you these services precisely because you're Chinese and you voted for the opposition. So um, there's a strong, uh, as I said, antagonistic relationship between most government officials who happen moreover mo- the vast majority to be ethnically Malay, non-Chinese, uh, and uh, Chinese um, uh, of, uh, I won't say no matter where they are in the class system, but um, uh, among the, uh, the people I knew uh, in Bukit Mirtajam. Now, Bukit Mirtajam is um, a, uh, was uh, from the time I started in 1978 and certainly continues to be a flourishing commercial center. It had um, some of the largest uh, uh, proportion of business um, businesses involved in wholesaling of um, you know of vegetables of uh, poultry swine uh, all sorts of goods uh, distributed goods and so forth so it's a flourishing commercial center lots of buying and selling and that's what chapter two called Boomtown in the making is about but it's also a place where a lot of money passes hands and um, Malaysian officials. Uh, whether petty or or high, whether policemen or 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 um, installers of, uh, of of utilities or whoever they might be, know that there's uh, because of the discrimination against uh, Chinese, they uh, the Chinese can will offer them money in return for certain services, uh, in return uh, to be allowed to conduct business and so forth, and as a result. There's a huge flow of, of, uh, of, of money in one direction towards employees of the state and of, uh, in the other direction, there are permissions, allowances, uh, licenses are provided, and so forth. Now, this is an uh, overall description of the situation. Of course, and I, I want, it's really important to point this out, at the individual level, Many Chinese and Malays get along well. They may be personal friends and so forth. uh, Nonetheless, I'm sketching out a broad social terrain, which uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, this relationship between um, particularly government officialdom and the Chinese residents of Bukit Murtajam that... uh, was consistent with their experience, as they told me and as I uh, witnessed it uh, over several years of uh, repeated research. So, um, 
predatory, yeah. And and you anchor much of the discussion in this part and also um, a, a lot of the discussion around cultural styles in events of the 1950s and 60s before you began fieldwork in the 1970s. Can you paint a little bit of the, that, that backdrop to the events of the present day, um, concentrating on, of course, the, the major political activities in the period and also um, the story of forced urbanisation of Chinese communities that significantly affects their relations up to the present time with the uh, predatory state? Sure. Uh, again, I think most of your readers will be... Um broadly familiar with the history of, of Malaysia in the post-war period, but just uh, for, uh, as a refresher, um, um, after the end of World War II, which of course involved the occupation by the Japanese military of uh, the uh, peninsula of Malaya, um, the British uh, entrepreneurs who and the British uh, um, officials returning to Malaya uh, were uh, eager to resume the same, uh, we could say, uh, what I call the status quo uh, uh, antebellum, which means the, the situation that existed before the war. And that, was a, uh, that situation was from the late 1930s um, up until uh, an, uh, early 1942 when the Japanese successfully invaded the Malayan Peninsula and in the course of, what, six or seven weeks, um, uh, were able to invade all the way from southern Thailand uh, to capture um, uh, uh, Singapore, which at the time was very much part of Malaya. So um, uh, the um, uh, flash forward after four years of really grim occupation of um, um, all sorts of, uh, um, you know, um, cruel behavior by the Japanese secret police, the Kempei Tai, the Japanese military, and so forth, particularly directed towards Chinese in Malaya, who were seen as allies, indeed supporting uh, the Chinese resistance against the Japanese invasion uh, of China. Uh, after four years of this brutal occupation, the, the British more or less come back, um, British entrepreneurs come back to reclaim their plantations, their uh, tin mine holdings, to restore uh, their monopoly positions in imports and exports. Um, and, um, you know, British officials um, uh, more or less go along with this. What happens, though, is that in the late 1940s, from 1946 to, uh, till 1948, um, there's a ferocious resistance on the part of working people, Malayan working people. And when I use that phrase, I mean not just working class Chinese, but also working class um, 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 Indians, that is to say uh, people who were mig uh, migrants from southern India, from Tamil Nadu, or um, the descendants of migrants who were part of the industrial working class of colonial Malaya. Um, and there's a... They... they uh, uh, they begin a ferocious resistance um, uh, uh, directed against, um, you know, British employers. The, uh, as I said, the the planters, the uh, or plantation estate managers and owners, the tin mine uh, owners, and, and uh, in the big agency houses or import export houses, the uh, coal mines, and so forth. 
at a time when the British colonial uh, entrepreneurs seek to re to not only reestablish the old order, but they uh, from the depression, which was horrible indeed. But they seek to ratchet it up now. Um, uh, the ferocious resistance, as I've called it, um, uh, by working people, Malayan working people, involves uh, strikes, uh, work stoppages, sabotage, and the whole lot of the whole repertoire of, uh, of forms of working class resistance, which uh, both in Australia, the US, elsewhere, uh, are, have been very much part of the building of uh, uh, the trade movement trade union movement, movements in these countries. Um, so uh, this, beca- this is a key issue, um, uh, an issue which goes far beyond uh, just, the, um, uh, just the, if you will, the, uh, the localized struggles between, uh, uh, let's say, the, um, um, the, mine, the Chinese um, workers and their employers in the Batu Arang, Collieries or coal mine uh, and, and other sites. Uh, it, it has geostrategic significance, and this is extremely important and very interesting. Um, and the geostrategic importance uh, for the British, particularly for the British uh, colonial administration, uh, uh, which is, after all, um, part of the uh, uh, you know the uh, which is uh, uh, connected to the colonial office, uh, indeed. Uh, uh, a branch of the colonial office in London uh, is that um, Great Britain uh, uh, is at a point, a low point in its contemporary history, um, having barely survived World War II as a as a political entity uh, due to the Nazis, uh, having uh, um, uh, lost huge amounts of property, um, having uh, you know both uh, at if you will, at home in Great Britain itself, but also in the colonies, which were left in ruin or seized by the Japanese, for example, in Malaya. Um, uh, but most importantly, deeply indebted to the United States. Great Britain was deeply indebted to the United States for the massive aid of the Lend-Lease Program, which provided uh, aid to um, military and uh, material uh, aid to Britain in its fight against the Third Reich and and, um, and the connection to Malaya is the following that it is precisely the rubber uh, the natural rubber and the tin that British enterprise colonial enterprise overseas or was trying to oversee in Malaya that provided the single most um, the uh, single largest and uh, a very large proportion of the balance of payments needed uh, within the Sterling area. If we think of the Sterling area on one hand as the area of the British Empire, of the Commonwealth at the time, and then the dollar area, the rising dollar area, the United States, the, the winning victor- victorious power with the uh, uh, with an upsurge of, indust- of industry and a huge uh, deferred growth by the late 1940s and uh, uh, so forth, then the geostrategic significance of capital accumulation by British planters, British tin miners, and others to provide a wealth that could be used to basically uh, uh, allow for a, a 
the repayment of the British war debt toward the United States was absolutely critical. It wasn't India. It wasn't Kenya. It was Malaya, which was so, had been so productive that the British uh, saw as absolutely essential to uh, um, getting reestablishing a degree of financial sovereignty with respect to the United States in that critical post-war period. And uh, so the, uh, when this resistance by Malayan working people began, the strikes, the work stoppages, the sabotage and so forth, it was fero- equally for- more ferociously resisted not just by, entre- uh, by the employers, um, but also by the British government. Uh, and uh, the British colonial government, I mean, uh, which had just reestablished control. Now, um, it's it's both clear, but somewhat. I mean, okay, it's clear that uh, that much of the leadership of the in the trade unions uh, was uh, connected to the Malayan Communist Party. It is also equally clear that many of the trade of the sorry of the labor actions and. Uh, that took place in the 19, late 1940s uh, by um, uh, people in, organi- in uh, labor unions was not incited, or sorry, initiated, I should say, by these, these leaders who also happened to be members of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, um, I'm sorry, Malayan Communist Party, the MCP. Uh, actually, this was uh, fairly spontaneous because workers were fed up. They were fed up with of being occupied by the Japanese and previously being badly mistreated uh, by uh, the uh, British uh, and other Europeans uh, in the 1930s. And part of it, too, was this, uh, the the issue was one of dignity because the the British um, uh, entrepreneurs, the British business people uh, returned to Malaya and started treating um, uh, uh, the, the, the colonial, uh, the colonized people, uh, as as inferior, as so that um, you know um, Chinese grown Chinese men would be called boy and so forth, and this was an additional insult. So there was much at stake materially for the Chinese for Malayan working people, including uh, Chinese laborers, uh, but also symbolically and. So, uh, in any event, uh, this was one of those confrontations, which I think is of world historical significance. I've actually written about it in an article that will come out um, in September in, the, in Critical Asian Studies, the journal Critical Asian Studies. So you can look for this greater, uh, uh, in greater detail. But uh, the, the important point is that um, the um, response... Uh, by the British colonial government to this, these labor actions was to uh, insist that this was primarily a communist problem inspired by uh, China, something that the British policymakers knew not to be true, by the way. Um, but it was true that, again, that labor leaders were um, uh, connected to, uh, many of the labor leaders were connected to the uh, Malayan Communist Party. So the um, in 1948, the... Um, um, British colonial administration banned the um, uh, Malayan Communist Party, um, jailed its leadership, um, um, you know, um, uh, made it in, an illegal entity, in effect. As a result, the Ch- uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, cadres uh, left this, uh, largely left the cities, and uh, though some were left behind, but they began an insurgency uh, in the um, 
uh, the uh, upland upland forested areas of the of, of, uh, of the colonial of the peninsula, and this led to a massive counterinsurgency effort between 1948 and the 1950s called the emergency. The emergency basically involved cutting off uh, the uh, guerrillas, the Malayan MCP guerrillas, including these labor leaders who had fled, uh, from their their base. Um, and their perceived base were rural Chinese. Uh, and uh, part of this uh, uh, counterinsurgency campaign, and a major part of it was, in, beginning in 1950, I believe, uh, the forced relocation of 500,000 Chinese and and uh, Indians. There were a few Indians as well, f- f- but um, the vast majority were uh, ethnic Chinese who were forcibly relocated into uh, what were called new villages. These were new villi- These were um, barricaded. Um, uh, structures with barbed wire fences, uh, police stations, um, uh, uh, you know, um, limited, uh, you know, uh, uh, people could only uh, leave during the day. People had to return at night. People couldn't carry out food during much of this period because the claim was that if they carried out food from these new villages, it would go to the guerrillas. So people had to go out and work uh, tapping rubber uh, or whatever hard work, physical work they were doing without food. Um, and this kind of, it was called food deprivation, or food control, sorry, food control. So this process um, uh, began in 1950, went on through uh, 1952 or so, uh, but people were required to remain in these new villages for many years after that. And for many years after that, depending upon the what was called the security situation in the area or region. Um, they were they couldn't move out of these camp, these new villages, uh, and so forth. And I, and when I arrived in 1978, I had the good fortune to talk to a number of local Chinese in Bukit Murtajam, uh, in uh, Penang State, who told me of experiences that their older relatives had had with the British uh, in the course of uh, being for, uh, forcibly relocated. And I report on these in um, uh, Chapter 1 called Counterinsurgency, Silences, and Forgetting. So that's an important part of the story, I would add, because it, 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 um, uh, what is a, you know, clearly has this class dimension of labor uh, you know, uh, around a, labor, a major labor struggle, one that the British uh, 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 forcibly put down for geostrategic reasons. This set the whole, if you will, set it was the prelude to what I began to see, what took place throughout the 1960s and into the 1970s when I began fieldwork in 1978. The prelude to the kinds of control over the very possibility of working class Chinese and were other working class people, including, I should add, working class uh, Malays, uh, to uh, express who they were, uh, to express, uh, to get together, to uh, have or form organizations, and so forth. So uh, uh, this um, uh, counterinsurgency campaign called the emergency, and that was done for insurance purposes. It was really a full scale war uh, against. Um, hundreds of thousands of people um, 
was, uh, you know, lasted uh, officially from 1948 till 1960. But it, it really, it, it, the, the, there were effects that continued into the 1970s when I got there. Um, there were still a police. There were still police uh, stations, but pe- policemen weren't stationed there anymore in 1978. But you could see the whole evidence of this whole counterinsurgency campaign in the five uh, uh, new villages of forcibly relocated Chinese, which were in and around the city of Bukit Murtajam, where I did my fieldwork. And so I came to know people in in those some of those uh, areas quite well. You you talk uh, in when you when you're developing the discussion around the fieldwork in the late 1970s itself about this impossibility of open class identification and action. However, there are important exceptional moments and one that you highlight across two chapters is the formation of the Lorry Drivers Association. Uh, Why was that association unusual and why does it matter for the story you're telling at that period in time? Right. Um, this was uh, uh, an organization which was formed just about uh, uh, not long before I, uh, or came into existence, not long before I, I came to, this, uh, to the area to begin fieldwork. And it's important because um, it consisted, the Lorry Drivers Association uh, consisted of um, several hundred truck drivers, or lorry drivers, um, the majority of whom were Chinese, but by no means all, who decided to form a group um, uh, in part for social reasons. And as I mentioned, among the Chinese, it was to worship in a certain, in, in, uh, during a certain Chinese holiday called the Festival of the Hungry Ghosts, popularly. Um, uh, and so, Chinese drivers came together and began uh, in um, uh, 1978, began to organize themselves to um, form uh, what is called a society. Now, this is important because uh, under British colonial rule, um, there could be societies organized for social purposes. We would, we would call them non-governmental organizations. Um, you know, um, uh, think of your, you know, uh, 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 some sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, um, local uh, welfare group to provide uh, services to the poor, whatever it might be. Um, and so those were called societies in uh, colonial law, and they were distinct legally and in terms of what they could, you know, do uh, from trade unions. So the truck drivers were able to organize themselves as a society, um, uh, uh, called the North Malaysian Lorry Drivers Association, um, but in effect quickly found that they could use some of the position that came from being together and speaking with a common voice for the first time uh, for purposes of collective bargaining, which, strictly speaking, was illegal because they were not trade unions. Only trade unions could collect, uh, could engage in collective bargaining under Malaysian uh, following British legislation. Um, and so this, this was a key, um, uh, became a key tool in some of the labor disputes that I came to learn about uh, about the time I began field work in, uh, from 1978 through 1979. Um, and so um, this um, uh, uh, 
organization um, really um, uh, allowed um, uh, worker, uh, particularly th- uh, this segment of, of Chinese workers, the these lorry or, lorry drivers or truck drivers, to organize themselves and to speak publicly and act publicly, um, uh, and outside a labor union, a trade union framework. At the same time, uh, and this is uh, Nick part of the the whole history of from the 1950s to the 1970s, uh, 1970s, as a result of uh, the proscription, the banning of the Malayan Communist Party, but it, uh, 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 it, uh, and the banning, most importantly, at the same time, and I should have mentioned this, of the, the major um, uh, national trade union called the Pan-Malayan uh, General Laborers uh, union and the one in Singapore was that corresponded to the Singaporean General Labor Union. The banning of these uh, trade unions took place precisely at the same time as the banning of the Communist Party. As a result, workers across eth- ethnic groups, across industries, across occupations within industry, uh, within industries, were never able to reorganize themselves nationally as a force of labor. Uh, from after 1948. And that's key to the fragmentation that has plagued the Malaysian labor movement subsequently. And um, beyond, uh, in it, uh, broadly speaking, um, um, Chinese working people are, are, have been um, vastly underrepresented in these um, uh, trade unions that have uh, come into existence over this very troubled period from the 1950s up to the present, really. Um, but it's one where the Malaysian government has continually hobbled uh, trade unions and uh, who they can, uh, you know, what actions they can take uh, around collective bargaining, around whether they can collectively bargain, around who can join them, around a whole uh, series of limitations. And, it, and, and the Malaysian government, uh, independent the post-colonial government, has been an able student of the British from this uh, counterinsurgency period of the emergency uh, in limiting the capacity of labor to organize. So it was in that context in 1978 that um, the organization of these uh, truck drivers into a society, uh, which was uh, regional, it wasn't national, but it was a step. It was a step towards saying, you know, to one another, hey, you know, uh, we, we have a special status in the world. We are... We, we work, we do this for the, uh, you know, we have this, we contribute to the, the great effort of, China, of uh, Malaysian development, um, we're, and, and so forth. And so it was a key moment, I thought, in the uh, post-war history of the, of the region, at least. I won't claim national significance, but in the region, I thought it was important what happened then and the way, uh, the, way the process unfolded uh, in which that society was eventually... Uh, not able to, uh, you know, to uh, play a role in collective gar- bargaining, and uh, its an antagonists, who were the truck owners' association of the re- of the of the region, were able to defeat them in terms of of um, uh, uh, any kind of uh, achieving any sorts of of uh, uh, labor rights. Let me put it that way. In writing about these lorry drivers, you. Going back to the earlier point about about crudeness and about the pedagogical style, you talk about a, a kind of embodied semiotics that they have, which you say is not well recognized or understood by 
anthropologists today. And in fact, you, you offer quite a strong criticism at one point saying that if anthropology is to be scientific and ethically accountable, it cannot accept the postmodernist fetishization of ethnographic writing, its tropes and genres. Mm -hmm. Please say a little bit more about why you're offering that criticism, which again is a, a strand throughout the work, and there's a, an element of self-criticism as well in reflecting on your own dissertation research, which I thought was very important to what you're uh -huh. addressing in the work. Well, those are, those, that, put, that question puts a lot together, so let me uh, try to unpack it. Um, again, um, this idea of an embodied semiotics uh, goes back to cultural style, That is to say, people have to, you know, um, uh, uh, people come to identify with certain positions in, in, in the world, differential positions, worker, uh, entrepreneur, uh, university student, um, government official, um, um, through, uh, uh, through communicating with others they perceive a, be, as being similar to them uh, and um, differentiating themselves Uh, from those that are different from them, uh, who are different from them. And so um, I, um, I came into uh, Book of Rintachim in 1978 as one of the very few um, non-Asian people uh, in the area. The only, I was uh, uh, too, uh, uh, this, you like this, uh, um, I was not confused with an Austra with Australian airmen who were uh, positioned in Butterworth, uh, who were um, part of the you know Commonwealth forces that were still stationed in Malaysia, uh, and they were the people who were uh, you know uh, they were the majority of them, of course, were were um, um, uh, European viewed uh, Euro European phenotype, and so I was I was. Uh, Uh, quite uh, unusual, uh, and um, I was, you know, identified myself as a university student. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed, you know, to uh, be completely candid about what, why we're there uh, and so forth. But, um, you know, I came to, Ma uh, eventually came to speak Mandarin fairly well. Um, but Mandarin, again, uh, as I pointed out uh, in my earlier comments, Uh, to you, um, Mandarin is a language, a, so, a spoken language associated with, uh, broadly put, one could call it Chinese civilization. It's associated with the, the, gra uh, the graphemes, the, the written script, so that when you speak Mandarin, you tend to be in an, um, an environment, you're in an educational environment where the written text is important. The written texting in uh, written Chinese texts in these, uh, in the case of the Chinese in Malaysia, happened to be those of the Chinese classics. So there was a connection between the Chinese gentleman, the Junzi, um, being speaking Mandarin, reading uh, Chinese characters uh, ably in uh, both the classical texts, you know, of, of Confucius as well as the Chinese language newspapers. Um, having manners, acting in a certain way, uh, walking and talking in a certain way, which, you know, I could emulate. Well, that's just fine. So uh, for certain purposes, I suppose. Um, in other words, um, some of the, uh, if, if they weren't outrightly suspicious of me, many of them, um, the, the 
Chinese uh, people who were, um, oh, they were small business people or they were members of the local political party um, or people who were not workers, uh, they could identify who I was. I was a student, and that's a relatively prized position um, uh, to be a student, a university student. But, you know, uh, I was also asking questions, and the the speculation was, was I... uh, was I reporting to the Malaysian government or was I spy? And so there was some suspicion about that. Uh, but on the whole, over time, those, you know, concerns dissipated. Uh, and I developed a fairly good rapport from 19, during my dissertation field work with Chinese small-scale merchants, with uh, educators, politicians, and so forth. Um, but... I had relatively little to do with Chinese working people, uh, Chinese working men in this case, but I was uh, very interested in the truck transport industry. And so I'd started to make uh, contact with many of them. Um, That was an important hiatus for me between 1980 when I returned from the field and then 1985 when I went back to Malaysia. I finished my degree at Stanford. I found employment uh, at the, in the new school and the graduate faculty of the new school for social research, uh, I t- uh, taught for three years, and so had a lot of time to think about what I really wanted to focus on beyond the dissertation. And I decided what was really important was uh, this whole question of class and uh, uh, what life was like for these relatively invisible, unspoken of workers, or they were called workers, but not much more was said. Uh, about them among most of the people I had met previously, these small-scale merchants and so forth, except allegations of crudeness and the like. Uh, So when I went back in 1985, um, you know, I tried to connect with uh, uh, these truck drivers uh, um, uh, and uh, meet them and get to know them socially. And there were language problems. Many of them did some uh, a large number did not speak Mandarin, or they spoke it poorly? Uh, I spoke Mandarin, but they their lingua franca was uh, um, what is called Penang Hokkien, a, ver- a regional version of Minanhua from uh, Fujian Province. Uh, I um, painstakingly began learning that, um, but I had, I had trouble communicating with them. Um, but I think it was just it wasn't just about language, it was about communicative style. And they saw me as sort of I think one of them, one of the people uh, uh, who uh, are you know would be, uh, be identified with their social superiors, with the Chinese, their, their employers, the uh, educators, the Chinese educators, and so forth. And so it was a class issue. It wasn't just about you know my not being able to speak. Uh, um, uh, Penang Ken fluently or the like. So I was there for several months in 1985 and I decided that I really needed to learn as much as possible about the, you know, what the, the working experience of these men was and to see if I could find a way to, to convince them and also uh, to, to, to learn from them. That's the best way of putting it. To learn from them uh, what their experience was like, but to do it on their terms. And that was a desperate casting about. And one of the things I did was to go and several, uh, uh, accompany them on uh, 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 three long-distance um, uh, 
truck journeys they uh, undertook, uh, and I actually spent, you know, a, you know, uh, oh, it was an elapsed 40 hours with them. Uh, these were long trips uh, hauling goods, uh, factory goods typically, uh, or um, other uh, what were called sundry goods, and they involved, uh, you know, getting, uh, you know, leaving it at uh, uh, 6 p.m. at night from Bukhmertajam, driving down to Kuala Lumpur uh, at till, uh, you know, for seven hours because this was before the the uh, the, the big uh, new. Uh, North-South Expressway. Uh, anyway, uh, leaving at 6 p.m. at night, getting to Kuala Lumpur, the outskirts of Kuala Lumpur at 4 p.m. Uh, a.m. in the morning, uh, sleeping for a couple of hours, and then being with them as they made these deliveries throughout suburban uh, uh, and downtown Kuala Lumpur of these sundry goods. Um, I'm describing one trip, but I took two other trips that were very similar. Um, and um, I just sat with them and I, you know, I watched out for uh, traffic cops when they were double parked. Uh, I noted their, you know, you know tr- tried to talk to them, but it was, of course, difficult to talk with the roar of the engine and so forth. But uh, the way I begin the introduction, as you know, and I return to that in chapter six, is with, uh, uh, to me, a, re- uh, a revealing conversation I had with two drivers I was accompanying uh, on this particular trip, uh, uh, Abba and Gauguin, in which they were basically, I think they'd come to see that I, you know, I was willing to spend time with them, sweat with them, help them in little ways, but I wasn't there to tell them what to do. I wasn't there to dominate the conversation. Uh, And I think it was that that, uh, it began to dawn, uh, dawn, uh, you know, led me to sort of uh, begin to realize that there was an alternative pedagogy, and that pedagogy was one we could call of learning through labor, or you could call it accompaniment. So that, uh, and that doesn't mean it's nonverbal, but it does involve being with people and sort of being a, a stalwart, having a stalwart presence, showing that you, you know, you you can be with the people and undergo their experience and that you're not too proud and you're not, you know, you don't have to be the one who tells them uh, uh, how the world should be. And instead, listen and listen prof- uh, profoundly and over a long period of time. And I think that, um, and then wait to get the message. And the message is what I call uh, this learning through labor where that you have uh, accompaniment uh, is uh, uh, being with them for uh, assisting in the labor process as much as I could in a limited way, but uh, waiting for them to tell me what they needed to tell me. And that's what the opening conversation led to. And what I'm claiming is that in today's uh, very rushed, and highly professionalized anthropology so, uh, involving fieldwork. Um, issues of uh, the whole question um, uh, is not one's discovery process, not how one discovers or learns from the people who have so much to teach us, but rather, given the postmodern impetus or uh, uh, dominance in uh, the anthropology, uh, U.S. anthropology especially, from the 19, uh, mid-1980s to the present, that, that has been one of writing up texts 
and certain kinds of textualized uh, technologies, if you wish, or techniques for writing uh, ethnography in a certain way, not listening, not discovering, not truly learning. And I think those, uh, those um, writerly or authorly uh, ways uh, of uh, doing ethnography, postmodern ethnography as it's called, uh, are ones that uh, are uh, actually, uh, potentially, certainly, and actually often uh, blind to these kinds of differences in pedagogy. And therefore, they're blind to a large number of people who I would claim, and I have a, a set this out in Chapter 6, uh, uh, who, engage, who, who have this l- l- learning through labor as a pedagogical model. And they're working people. And they're people who don't, you know, who uh, don't uh, speak the language of the dominant. They don't sit down across from you in the, in a, in a, uh, and quietly give you a full text that you can refashion uh, through your, uh, your uh, capacities as a writer. They're difficult, refractory pe- uh, subjects, if you wish. Uh, they're recalcitrant. They don't immediately open up. You have to accompany them. You have to be willing to listen to them, put down your pen, and sweat with them. Um, uh, is that making sense? Um, very much so. You can't see me, obviously, but I'm nodding in the background. Uh, but this, this book comes out of three decades, even more than three decades of, of experience. It is um, rich and deep in so many ways. And so I'm somewhat hesitant to ask the traditional closing question, which is what are you working on now? But perhaps <laughs> in a few words, you can tell us where to from here for your research. Right. Um, that's a good question, Anik. Um, this this um, book took a long time to write um, because it involved, to me, uh, radical rethinking of uh of uh, everything, I mean, uh, from the radical rethinking of my graduate training, radical rethinking of pedagogy, radical rethinking of, of the data I'd collected, uh, questioning myself over long periods of time of whether this project was ever going to reach any kind of fruition, whether I could ever make sense of my data, whether I could uh, form rapport with people. Uh, and um, I will be the first to admit right now I'm taking a bit of a break from it. It just came out after many years of, of work. And I think uh, what I hope to do uh, in, I'm, uh, is to start a new pro- project uh, on a very different subject, but one where many of the same issues of class and ethnicity and gender and state formation come up, and that's the idea of the urban commons. Uh, um, the common property uh, is a something widely studied in rural areas. There's a whole, there's a vast literature on common property. Whether we're talking about common stocks of, of uh, you know, um, natural resources or um, you know of um, you know uh, intellectual property and so forth. But I'm very interested uh, in uh, ur- the urban commons, and the urban commons are commons, common property. Uh, arrangements which are constructed through the struggles of working people again in cities. And so um, I'm uh, doing a little bit of comparative research uh, on urban commons around housing uh, uh, in um, several different sites, um, and one of them is in China. I'm not sure. I may try to do something in Malaysia, um, but I'm 
that's still in, in formation. So uh, the, it's a cross-cultural comparative study on the urban commons and the way in which social movements of working people, of urban residents and others are working together, uh, create these, uh, uh, make these commons, often suffer defeats, have to, you know, uh, give up for periods of time, come back, try it again, eventually uh, have certain uh, social policy achievements, um, you know, public schooling, public housing, as the case may be, public health care. Um, and I want to look at these in a variety of settings, um, China, Europe, the U.S., and potentially uh, Southeast Asia, probably Malaysia. If, but uh, I now wonder whether the government is going to welcome me back. But anyway, that's, a, that's where I am right now on that question. Well, Professor Don Nanini, it's been a, a great pleasure to talk with you today about getting by class and state formation among Chinese in Malaysia. Thank you for coming on the show and thank you for writing the book. Sure. Thank you. And thank you for interviewing me, Nick. And, uh, and uh, let's keep in touch. Indeed. And thanks to everyone for listening. Please do join me again for our next meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian studies. And don't forget that you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or via the website where, if you feel inclined, you can also make a donation to the New Books Network. Hey, 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 hey,